1: Who in here trying to start? Who in here trying to start? Who in here trying to start? It is the Lockdown Bangled Podcast with your hosts, Joe Goodberry and Jay Find us on Twitter at Joe Goodberry. And at Jake underscore NFL. Please like, subscribe, and share as we try to grow this community and pump out daily Bengals content just for you. Hello, Bengals fans.
2: It's the weekend, which means it's weekend mailbag time here on the Locked on Bengals podcast. I know you're probably not going to work this weekend, at least I hope you're not, but if you're going anywhere, remember to tell your smart device to play podcast Locked on Bengals when you get in the car and listen to Joe and I answer like 75 questions today or however many questions we have. It's a lot. You guys were active on the Twitters and we appreciate that. We're going to just jump right in because we have so many questions to get through. The first one comes from David Meredith at D Meredith 28. He asks, what would be better value at 11? A stud offensive tackle like Andrew Whitworth or a stud defensive tackle like Geno Atkins. If you knew those two players would perform at that level, he talks about Jonah Williams and Ed Oliver in this example, just to pick some guys in this draft. Maybe those aren't the guys, but that's an extremely difficult question. If I knew that there was an Andrew Whitworth and a Geno Atkins on the board at 11. I'm uh, trading the rest of my draft for, for pick number 12 and taking them both is my first answer. But if I have to pick one, oh man, Joe, what, what do you do? I don't want to answer first.
1: Yeah, because you have to pick one, right? You, you more than likely can't get that 12th pick to back, go back to back. I think that's tough. I think it's incredibly tough because you look at your roster and you're going to say it doesn't matter even if you needed a tackle or or," on either side, offensive tackle or defensive tackle, you would take those guys if you believe that's what they would become. Uh, I believe in today's game, and if the game continues to evolve the way it is, there's a chance that defensive tackle is more valuable than left tackle. Just like I think interior offensive line could end up being more valuable than tackle also. And it's because of these defensive tackles. And if you don't have one, it really hurts your defense to not have a Geno Atkins out there, or an Aaron Donald, or name you know the fifty guys out there for in the league that can cause havoc inside. So I think I would lean on that defensive player. But man, it would be hard to to make that decision if I really needed an offensive tackle.
2: Yeah, the way I think about this, I think now that I've had some time to think about it while you answered is who's going to be the bigger disruption in the game for your opponent. And you don't, you know, neutralizing your opponent's weapon versus having your own weapon, I kind of lead toward having your own weapon. I think Aaron Donald probably makes more of an impact for the Rams on the field just because he makes that entire defense. The entire defense is built around him in the same way Geno Atkins. The entire defense in Cincinnati is built around Geno. If you go from an Andrew Whitworth a tackle to an average tackle, which the Bengals did uh, with a year gap in their Cordy Glenn, you you can still get by as an offense. You, still, you, you give up a few more pressures. It's not great, but you still are okay. If you go from a Geno Atkins... Or an Aaron Donald to an average defensive tackle, that fall off for me has a much bigger impact on the game. So I think after working through that exercise in my head, I'm on the defensive tackle.
1: Yeah, I am too. Next question is from Sam Anger. He asks, out of the realistic players in the first round, which would you rather take and if you can put them in order? And he lists Devin White, Jonah Williams, Kyler Murray, DK Metcalf, and Ed Oliver. Am I going first? Okay.
2: Sure. Uh, We just talked about the value of a defensive tackle that can wreak havoc on the game, but for me, uh, Kyler Murray is my QB1, and so I'm on Kyler Murray first. I think I'm on Ed Oliver second. I think I'm on Jonah Williams third, Hawkinson fourth,
1: Metcalf fifth. Is that all the guys? Yep. Uh, Hawkinson wasn't on there. It was Devin White. Oh. Well, then... They're probably the same order, huh? Yeah. Okay. For me, right, I would also have Metcalf last. And it's not that I don't like him, and I could see a wide receiver need instantly becoming a huge hole. But I also go at Oliver first. Uh, I think he's a tremendous prospect. And just testing-wise, there should be no really red flags. The only thing on his measurements today is he listed at 287 pounds when he weighed in today it was – 32-inch arms, which is – or 31 and some change. I think it was 31 and 6-8s, which if you look at Geno Atkins, Mike Daniels, those shorter defensive tackles, they have 32-inch arms. So he's just a hair below those. But, again, I think at Oliver upside-wise. And then I'd go Jonah Williams second. I think he is – a plug and play guy that probably plays four positions. When I was watching NFL network today, apparently Alabama asked him to play center also, and he felt he could do it, but he's got a chip on his shoulder and he wants to play tackle. And I love the way he talks about it. I'd go Devin white next. uh, And then Kyler Murray. And I put him last because I try to avoid outliers. And I know Kyler Murray is an outlier from the jump. And because of it, uh, I wouldn't feel as comfortable taking him. Now I would be excited and be all in if the Bengals actually took Murray, but, if it's me, I, I tend to avoid the riskier
2: players. So for you, this this year doesn't have the quarterback that you're comfortable taking
1: over those position guys, right? Not top twelve or so. I wouldn't now. If I was in pick twenty four and Kyler Murray, Dwayne Haskins, even Drew Locke was there at that point, I'd be interested. I, I feel the same way about Will Greer. If I get into the second or third round, I, I'm interested at that point. I just um, there none of them are my get the franchise stamp, and that because of that, I uh, I hesitate.
2: Fair enough. Next question comes from Corey at meter 14 on Twitter. I feel like since Whitworth and Peko have left, the leadership group hasn't been quite as influential on the rest of the team. Do we have an up up and coming leader with the younger
1: group of this team in the same mold of wit or Peko? Yeah, I think we do. I think Jesse Bates on the defensive side. I think Billy Price on the offensive side. One of the reasons I, I believe they gravitated to those two prospects is because of that loss of leadership. Uh, both those guys had the character they wanted. It helps if they're good players, and for Jesse Bates to hit the ground running, uh, if Philly Price turns, turns his career around from a rough rookie year, he can e- easily be the leader of that offensive line, and having that at center is a plus for a lot of teams. So for Bates being at safety, making the checks and calls in the back half, you get thrust into a natural leadership position, and he seems like the type of guy that can handle it anyways. I think those are your two guys going forward. Sam Hubbard is another guy who I think has a personality to
2: be a leader in the same way that Peko was like, maybe not the highest on field production, but great locker room guy. Yeah. Does his job. You know, he he has a personality that as he grows up, I think he could be a locker room leader as well. Billy Price. Best case is like become Richie Bram, at least in the perception of Bengals fans, have that intelligence, have that leadership.
1: I think there's a chance we could say Joe Mixon too, right? If he continues the way he's been sure. the first two years, he's outspoken, he's energetic, he's normally extremely positive. Uh that's a good those are good qualities to have. What running backs around the NFL are team leaders? You know, and like Marshall Falk, and I'm going back, but you know, when they're really good, I think they end up being team leaders, and especially when they're they're on every down and they're just smart, intelligent guys too. I think that helps. Ladanian Tomlinson, maybe? Is he a leader? Sure. Yeah.
2: Kind of bounced around there toward the end of his career. Yeah,
1: for sure. On to All the right, next, next one. Yep, I've got the next one here. And it's it's from L1C4. He goes by Duncan D. Nuts. D. Z. Nuts. Great name on Twitter. Anyways, he asks, If we trade back, I really like the idea of taking Garrett Bradbury, who's a center from NC State, and moving Price to guard. What do you guys think about that? I mean, if all the tackles are gone, that's the only way
2: I get there personally. I'm on Dalton Reisner late in the first round or, I don't know, another tackle. Just talking about positional value, again, uh, I'm looking at the positional value of a tackle over a guard. You say, yeah, guards and, and centers are becoming more important because of these internal guys, these internal pass rushers in the NFL, but... The Bengals have Bowling, the Bengals have Price, the Bengals have Westerman, at least somebody you could hope on, on the interior, and we don't really have anybody on the roster right now where you look at it and say, here's a tackle I can hope on. I mean, maybe Jake Fisher, if you really want to stretch, and he's a free agent anyway. So I... I, Sure, yeah, that's a pick if the tackles are gone and, and that's a good move that might make sense. But then, I mean, you have a rookie center again, so you can expect some growing pains
1: there. Joe, what do you think? I'm all for drafting a center and potentially moving Price to guard. Not only that, did I think Price was a better guard prospect than a center prospect, uh, I just don't know how I feel about spending a first-round pick on an interior offensive lineman. And normally the maximum value for centers or guards is to take them after 20 in that range in the first round. The Bengals have already done that. You don't want to do it back-to-back years because when you get to year five and you got to extend both these guys, it'll be extremely tough to spend that type of money and at one position. Right, and they won't. So it kind of scares me going into it. It's like taking Jonathan Joseph and Leon Hall back-to-back. What did we, what did we hear those final two years there together? Well, they can't keep both of them, and, you know, they spent – numerous massive resources trying to replace the one they lost ever since then. And they probably never did replace them. So I don't like the idea of ever going back to back in drafts at the same position, but I think tackle and then interior offensive line makes more sense. You could justify paying that cause you're spreading it out a little bit, but if they get to the third round and there's a center that's there that they really like and they draft them, I've got no problem at that point because uh, it's value and you're making your offensive line better. There you have it.
2: Next question. We had a lot of questions come in about Josh Rosen. The questions have ranged from Arizona offers you Rosen for pick 11. Do you take it? What would you be willing to give up for Josh Rosen? Would you trade for Josh Rosen? So let's just address the Josh Rosen question. Are you interested in Josh Rosen and what would you pay for him?
1: I am interested. I'm interested because I... I think we should go back a year and see how we felt about Rosen and I believe I said this on another podcast but I'd have him ranked above Dwayne Haskins and Kyler Murray. I really liked Rosen. I thought he was an anticipatory thrower. I thought he moved well in the pocket and both of those are qualities I like. From what I understand the Bengals liked Josh Rosen last year. So it becomes interesting if that scenario does play out. How do you feel about him? How much does that Arizona tape from last year hurt your evaluation of Rosen? Should it hurt your evaluation of Rosen? I mean, they were, that was a completely dead zone uh, for offensive football last season and, and for the Cardinals. So would I give up the 11th pick? I would have drafted him with the 11th pick last year. But now I can't help but to have my mind tainted by what he did in, in, as a pro for one season, and it wasn't impressive at all. And now I feel like, well, I shouldn't have to give up that 11 pick to get him. If it was an an opportunity to give up a second or maybe a conditional pick, I would be all for that. Maybe you give up a first and they give you something back, whether that's a third, fourth, fifth, some mid-round pick. I could be more interested then. But I also come to the question of how— sure are the Bengals taking a quarterback because now it's not just valuing him versus the other quarterbacks in this draft because I definitely like him over Drew Locke and Daniel Jones but do I like Josh Rosen more than if a Jonah Williams, Devin White at Oliver or even T.J. Hawkinson, Noah Fant were available at 11 and then I'm not so sure.
2: Yeah so for the Bengals they really need to be sure that this is the guy that we want to we want to go with, and then maybe they try to trade Dalton too, and who
1: knows? Maybe maybe they recoup some of the value that way. Sure, that I didn't think about that. Right, if you get a third round pick back for Dalton, even better. If you got a second rounder, then I am much more interested in that trade. Uh, but yeah, it would be dependent on that also.
2: Next question, Joe.
1: Yep, I uh, have one here. And this is a weird question that I don't know how to answer. Maybe you can answer it, Jake. You seem like you can answer this one much better than I can, okay? It's from Kevin Lynch. His Twitter is from 4th and Lynches. and he asks, what are your thoughts on Andy Dalton being the hottest quarterback in the league?
2: I can answer that better than you, huh? Yes. <laughs> All right. I don't know what you're talking about, Kevin, 4th and Lynches. Uh he has he has an up to date haircut. You know, it's red. That's hot. Oh, you're you're
1: talking about his physical appearance. Oh,
2: okay. Uh, he, I'm, nobody's talking about Andy Dalton. He's not the he's
1: not the hottest topic around the NFL. I, I don't know. I think that's how he wanted it answered. Uh, Andy Dalton's very handsome. There's nothing wrong with that. He is. Man, he re- Tom remember, Brady's in the league. But you remember his hair when he first came out? No. I mean that that you don't remember Dalton's hair, man. It was. It was bad. That it looks. It's a nice. I mean, it's it's impervious to helmet. Yeah, that's true. And, that's crazy. What yeah, does he, he take, use? I know. What does he use? Why doesn't anybody ask that? This. These are the questions we need from Paul the Dana. media at the press conferences. Yes. If you're out there, Paul, I,
2: and I, you probably have time to listen to somebody else's podcast about the Bengals, ask Andy Dalton what his hair product is. Yep, that's what we need to know. All right. Next question. Uh, Andrew at Docker77 asks If the Bengals became, for example, the London Bengals, would we still be fans
1: of that team? Yeah, I would. Uh, we, we talked about this briefly on what would it take to. The question was, what would it take for us to give up our fandom of the Bengals? And. Some people answered if they left Cincinnati because obviously they live in Cincinnati. That part of a bit large part of that connection is being a hometown team. Uh, for me, I don't have a connection with Cincinnati. I mean, I kind of do now, but I, I didn't grow up with one. So it wouldn't affect me as much. And I would still root for them if they were the London Bengals. For me, logistically, it doesn't
2: make much sense because London, I'm on the West Coast. So London is three hours further. Ahead of me than they are on the on the East Coast, so I I would have to wake up at seven six in the morning to watch their games. Yeah, that'd be and, the hardest part, right? And 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 for me, it is a Cincinnati thing. I, I'm I'm the Cincinnati part of this podca- podcast. I grew up there, so yeah, I don't know if I would follow them overseas, logistically, geographically. The Do you thing have that a second talk- team that you would pick? I probably go to Mike Zimmer. Okay. That that would be that would be the, the first stop. See, I lived in Seattle too. I, I like Seattle. They do they do advanced modern stuff. I like the modern stuff. If the Patriots didn't win so much, right. I love the way the Patriots run their football team. I mean, the cheating aside, I love how good Bill Belichick is as a coach. Yeah, but the Patriots aren't aren't on the table. Maybe maybe I join Matt Harmon's. Uh, you know, pick a pick a new team. He's doing a whole mini series.
1: Yeah, you sh- that, that's what I would do, too. I'd put it up to the internet. I'd put it up to whoever offered the most opportunities to make money. Well, was it a few I- years ago? There was that Bengals
2: fan that auctioned off his, his fandom. I think yeah. he became a Steelers fan. So, I mean, obviously, that's never happening. That's the worst. Yeah. All right, uh, next question. R- real from- quick, sorry. Uh, the, for, for me, one of the things that might keep me around is if I'm invested in the players on the team. And I talked about this when they sure. asked, you know, what's going to get you to, to move on. I get invested in the players on the team, so you know if there if there was a year they moved and I was like, you know what, I don't really like any of the guys on the team anymore anyway. They're an unlikable team right now. Then I'm then I'm moving on to.
1: I can see that. Uh, next question is from Bengals UK at Hude underscore UK. He asks, with Callahan yesterday suggesting that like the Rams, there might not be an emphasis on game changing tight ends in their system. Do you still invest in someone like Hawkinson if he's there at eleven?
2: I didn't, for one, fully take that away from his interview. Yeah, he talked about the Rams as an effective offense that didn't have these matchup tight ends, but they also had productive tight ends. And the Rams last year were interested in Tyler Eifert. So you can't tell me that if you were to put TJ Hawkinson on the Rams, they wouldn't have a better offense. That being said, the more we do these mock drafts, the more we look at the way the board is likely to fall... And we talked about this yesterday when we talked about tight ends. I think that the class is deeper for tight ends that can be difference makers than it is at linebacker and offensive line. So I think Hawkinson, we'll see how he tests. He, he's running tomorrow, right? Yes. So we'll see how he tests tomorrow. I think He'll probably test very well, and I think he's probably one of the more complete tight end prospects in quite a while. But for me to want Hawkinson at 11, he needs to have, you know, Gronk-like upside, essentially,
1: given the state of this team right now. Yeah, and I like your point that, you know, basically how I took it is the best offenses in the league— will evolve based on their personnel. So, of course, the Rams didn't use a tight end because they didn't have a good one, or or at least a game-changing one. But they did still this. use tight ends. Sure, but if they had a, a game-changing tight end, they would have used them much more. Sure. So, yes. you know, the point is, you're going to adjust to what you have. So I'd I still Callahan like saying, basically, I, whatever you give me, we're going to figure out the best way to run the offense. But if you did have a game-changing tight end, they'd figure out a way to incorporate them. And the thing about Hawkinson also is he is a fantastic blocker. And because of it, he helps out your offensive line and run game. So he would have an impact, and his value would be felt. It's hard to take a tight end top 12 in any year, in any prospect. The best prospects rarely go that high. Uh, so it's hard to swallow it any way you cut it, If you're even if you're not going to use them. But if, if any of these guys, Noah Fant or TJ Hawkinson, turned into game-changing players, if they turned into Gronk uh, and O.J. Howard or whoever you are going to find a way to use them in any good offense in the league.
2: Yeah, and, and like we talked about with defensive tackles, they're going to be game changers that offent- that opposing teams have to plan around, and they're going to make huge impacts, and maybe that's a bigger impact than an offensive lineman might have. I still have a hard time with it, but maybe maybe that ends up being correct when you take the long-term plan. Maybe they sign Jawan James, and, and then Hawkinson makes sense, and they get bush or or uh blanking mac wilson yeah in, in round two let's take a quick break uh we'll come back we have a bunch more questions to get through so stick around and we'll get back into the mailbag in just a second
0: They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.
2: Welcome back to the Locked On Bengals Podcast. It's the weekend mailbag. You guys came at us with many, many questions. The next one comes from name cannot be dank at nug funny. On Twitter, man, you guys have some creative Twitter names. I got to say, I'll give it to you. How does the existing personnel fit into a possible switch to a 3-4 scheme? How will this affect nickel? If we do change philosophy, how many linebackers do we need to draft slash sign?
1: Well, first question I'll answer is the last. How many linebackers? Uh, It probably doesn't change much even though you may think four linebackers start it's really two linebackers and it's your still two yeah right it's your two interior guys so it depends on how you feel about the current roster and i'm thinking of nick vigil um jordan evans malik jefferson if any of those guys can take even an incremental step in their development they may be one of your starters and then you only need to either sign or draft one more uh it may be resigning preston brown and then drafting a guy either way You may need one immediate starter, and you may need a couple backups or one guy that could possibly start. So it still ends up being one plus, maybe two total for linebackers because the other guys are edge players. One is going to be Carl Lawson, or you would switch. One of the biggest reasons why you'd want to switch is Carl Lawson and getting him on the field for 90% of the snaps by having him play the edge position in a 3-4 defense. So the other one would come down to, could Sam Hubbard play it? He's a little heavy for that position, but he might be able to do it. Same with Carlos Dunlap. And the other one, maybe Jordan Willis is your other outside edge linebacker. Uh, and that might be a way to get him on the field also if, for your base defense as a run defender. So that could all work. The, the question becomes that defensive line, and I think it would be more if we're talking about a one- Gap unit, And the difference between one gap is two gap is basically, do your defensive linemen hold up their offensive line and protect their left and right shoulder, or are they attacking the gap and putting pressure on the defense? And most defenses now are one gap. So the 3-4 four, and 4-3 four, really doesn't change in terms of personnel because you're still going to have, so if, even if you have three down linemen and it's, let's say, Dunlap, um, Billings at nose tackle, Geno Atkins at the other defensive tackle spot. The other end is just that outside linebacker that's going to that's gonna walk up, which would be Carl Lawson. If you look at like Vaughn Miller in their 3-4 defense, he is uh, called a linebacker. He makes it a Pro Bowl every year as a linebacker, but he dropped into coverage just 18 times last year and rushed the passer or, or attacked the offensive line or lined up on the defensive line uh, for 95% and 96% of his snaps. He is for all intents and purposes, a defensive end. And the, the, we call them edge because it doesn't matter if you stand up or put your hand down, your responsibilities stay the same. So uh, it's not a big change. What it does provide you is an opportunity to move guys around a little bit, especially in nickel. Uh, you can be more a little more fluid with, or at least I think these teams are. I don't think you have to be. I just think this is the way it goes. Those teams are, get a little more creative with their blitzes and their packages, and maybe they – bring Carl Lawson around into the inside or or that defensive tackle because can can line up a little bit outside at defensive end or outside the five tech. So it just gives you more options and variation, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be that way. It's just the way it tends to be.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because it puts Carlos Dunlap on the inside, which – uh, you know, I, I think he's still an effective guy that you want on the edge. And if you're moving and he's probably too big to play three, four outside linebacker, right? Like he probably yep. takes some stats standing up, but he's, he's a down lineman. And, and if you have, let's say Sam Hubbard and, and Carl Lawson at your outside linebackers and you have three down linemen, who's dropping into coverage? Cause you're not bringing five on every play. Right. So right. th- those are questions that you have to kind of deal with in terms of personnel. Do they do they feel like Lawson and Hubbard can play a little bit of a zone every now and then if they have to cuz one of them has to on every
1: play if those are your guys, right? And we're probably only talking about 25% of the defensive snaps. So right yeah, yeah, yeah. If if it's Nickel, it doesn't you don't even have to play D- Dunlap in those 25%. That could be the time he has off. You know, because you'd want to save him for your Nickel and third down anyways. So Take well, him off there and then put someone else in. He's such a good run defender. I feel
2: like he... Uh, anyway, that's probably getting too far down the rabbit hole. What What would you do with Ed Oliver if, if the Bengals moved to a 3-4? He's just... Same role as Carlos Dunlap would be in
1: that defense? Yeah, same as what Geno Atkins is. I mean, honestly, he would just play in new nickel package right now. And yep. it would be Atkins and Oliver as your two-down defensive tackles. Take the Steelers, for example. They have... Uh, Stephon Toowett and Cameron Hayward, right? Those are their two defensive linemen. Even though they also have Javon Hargrave, who is, basically plays their nose tackle position in their base defense, when they go to nickel, so most of their game, it's just Toowett and, and um, Hayward inside. And the rest are TJ Watt and Bud Dupree as their edge rushers. So you got to look at it that way. It would be Geno Atkins and at Ed Oliver inside, and you'd have Atkins and Lawson on the edge, just like they'd had the last two years or wanted to have with Lawson. So it doesn't change that much. Mm hmm. Next question we got is from JJ Nicholas at Nicholas 85 on Twitter. He asks, who would be the best offensive lineman to re-sign for depth purposes? Andre Smith, Jake Fisher, or Bobby Hart?
2: I think that this is a slam dunk Jake Fisher for me. There might be an argument that Bobby Hart, if he's your backup, isn't the worst backup tackle to have. But Jake Fisher still has upside. It's Jake Fisher for me.
1: Yeah, and I would actually put Jake Fisher last as a backup because when I'm thinking of backup, I want someone who could step in and play. Fisher has been completely unreliable from a health standpoint. While I think, while I think there's a chance he could still end up being a, a starter in the NFL based on what he has shown when he's played, if I want to backup, health is the most important thing there because you need that guy to play and have the versatility. Andre Smith has been pretty versatile. He's been healthy for the most part, but he did. Hasn't played well in a while, and he did get cut last year from the Cardinals before coming on with the Bengals. I'd probably say it's Bobby Hart because at least if I need to start him, I may be able to start him at guard or tackle and get through a game or two. I would not be keen on the idea of, 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 of him being my swing tackle because we've seen him play and it's not very good. But at the same time, you could do much worse for that position. Next question
2: comes from... Andrew at Docker 77. Who do you take first a tackle with great tape, but 28 inch arms or tackle with average tape and 38 inch arms, assuming all else is equal.
1: So I'm assuming I'm not taking either of these guys in the first round because the guy with the bad tape, I don't want him in the first round or not in the second or third. Uh, But the guy with the 28 inch arms is a complete freak anomaly on the wrong side of the spectrum I don't know how he would have good tape with 28-inch arms. He must have the best feet and balance of anyone I've ever seen in my life. But I got to go with the guy with 38-inch arms. There's no way 28-inch arms could block anybody in the NFL level. I mean, maybe you could take up a pick up a blitzing corner. I'd move him in the fullback, I think. But I got to take the guy with the, at least the prototypical size.
2: Yeah, I think like maybe if this question is 31-inch arms versus 35-inch arms, it gets a little bit more interesting, yeah. So let's say that's what it is. If it's 31 35, you're still way below what you're looking for in a tackle. Great
1: tape versus average tape is it but still the longer arms? And a way he was the guy with the 36 inch arms with the bad tape, and he went in the first round. I think those 31 inch guys they say, Cody Whitehair, you're a tackle in college, I'm moving you to center in the NFL. That happens so. Both those guys probably still get drafted in fairly high, even though Whitehair wasn't a first-rounder. But my point being, you'd find a spot for that 31-inch arm guy, even though he's got short arms. Meanwhile, the 35 tackle with the bad tape may never be anything more than a bad tackle with long arms. Yeah, I think I'm with you there. Okay, next question. This is from Alex from Lex Sardinas on Twitter. He asks, Why aren't we talking more about DK Metcalf at 11? With Green's contract and Ross still with much to prove, this guy could be a game changer. Sure, he could be. Are we ready to take another receiver?
2: I I don't know. I mean, his tape is How good would he have to be? Is his tape... Like, I haven't watched DK Metcalf yet, but is his tape really good?
1: Yeah, at times. He's got good straight line speed. Obviously, when you're big and bulky like that, there are some mechanical things where he looks like a robot, but yeah, he wins deep. He went short. He runs after the catch. He's big and strong, obviously, and he should test very, very well, but it's going to test great. He's not green or Julio. No. So he's not a slam dunk. Well, if he was, he'd be in the top five. Fair. Uh, and he may still, because they expect him to test like, like a, a monster. But, uh, I look for me receivers. I need, I value explosiveness, uh, deliberateness in your route running so like when that when that foot plants and cuts he moves that acceleration out of it and most of all ball skills i think it's a natural and innate ability to track the football play it comfortably in the air and to torque your body in the air and and feel comfortable catching below your knees above your head outside of your frame if you can do that i feel good about your chances in the nfl i'm not saying metcalf metcalf isn't that but he doesn't have that lateral explosion and agility that i first mentioned so I'm not ready to to invest that pick, but I wasn't ready to to take OJ Howard a few years ago, and they probably should have. So it, it, I think it's a similar situation. Whereas, are we drafting for three years down the line, or are you drafting for right now? And sometimes you really got to consider three years from now. And in that scenario, the Bengals may really need a number one receiver. But it's a deep class
2: at receiver too, and there's a number of guys that might turn into number one receivers, so or number two receivers at least. So. Yeah. That's another reason that he's on a, like, if DK, if DK Metcalf is there at 11, do I consider it? Sure. Depends on who else is there. If Hawkinson, your top two tackles are gone, Ed Oliver's gone, uh, maybe, right? Sure. You know? But it's just a deep closet
1: receiver this year. And I feel good about my ability to find a receiver in the mid to late rounds Uh, Just going off my history of guys that I've really liked, like Marvin Jones that I had had as a second rounder, uh, Tyler Lockett, and Stephon Diggs, I had as first round picks. I really like those guys, and you can get them in the third, fourth, fifth round sometimes. I think you can find quality receivers later, and this is a deep class. There's a lot of mid-round guys I really like. That was the one glimmer of hope I had or excitement I had when the John Ross uh, rumors were out there that he could be traded. I was like, Ooh, I can't wait to watch all of these receivers in detail and find a guy because it is my favorite position to evaluate. It's a fun one. It's a flashy one. Next question
2: comes from Harold at CH on Twitter. He asks, what will Turner do that Pollock and Alexander failed to do? The Bengals website talks about differences between offense and schematics that made the offense fail at times.
1: What were those differences and why did they exist? Okay, so it's first, look, schematic differences between Paul Alexander and Frank Pollock. Now, I'm not sure about Turner and what he's going to run. He ran different things plenty of times from college to the pros. But for Alexander, it was more man-gap um, responsibilities, so you you got more power runs. He liked bigger, stronger offensive linemen traditionally. He was more of a teacher of technique, and he's. it's been said that he teaches a different type of technique. Low wide hands. Uh, be patient, balance, and and basically uh, control the blocker after they come in to make contact with you. So you, you invite them in and then you control them. And it's different than where it's coached. So sometimes there was a learning curve in Alexander's scheme, but he was a technical teacher and, and a smart guy. So when the Bengals started to evolve into the more modern day offenses, especially when Bill Lazor took over, from what I heard, Bill Lazor is really like past centric offensive mind. He needed help with expanding the running game, and that was Paul Paul Alexander helped with that, stepped in with that, and they wanted to run more zone schemes, and from what I understand is he wasn't the best teacher at, at it, and he's not the one to get the whole unit to work together in unison. He's more of teaching individually and getting players to their max potential, from what I understand. Frank Pollock, more on the other hand, was a heavy zone guy, learned under Bill Callahan at the Cowboys, and wasn't known for being a technical teacher. Like, he's the kind of guy that was apparently – Go out and seek help in the offseason to help with your, some of the things you need, and then come back to me. We're, we're going to fit you in, and we're going to get these five linemen blocking together in unison, and these zone blocks are going to work because of it, and I'll get some the best out of some of these subpar players as a unit. And I think he did get that last year, and so that makes sense. Uh, very different schematically and how they approach teaching from what I was told. So. I don't know what, how Turner comes or, or what advantage he gives you there. I don't think it's going to be a schematic difference. The Bengals look like they're they're building a team that's going to run inside and outside and wide zone. So Pollock would have fit that from that standpoint. Uh, but when you watch Texas A&M, they're running out of shotgun a lot. And I think there are some differences when you run out of shotgun as, as much as you do in college. I remember reading Willie Anderson talking about it recently, how he didn't appreciate it before how he wanted to put his hand down and road grade and run block. But then as he watches modern offenses, he goes, you know, it's actually nice that you can use that as a tool to get a uh, a, a defensive lineman to think you're it's a pass play or to think that it, he can, you know, run around you and you use it to get him out of the way. So there are advantages to running out of shotgun and different techniques and, and things you can teach from that side of the offense. So maybe that's what Turner brings and allows the Bengals to expand that way. And I've got one more question before we take a break, Jake. And it's from Joe Dan Smorgasbord on Twitter and is Jordan Soros underscore on Twitter. So he asks, what players on the current Bengals roster would you not trade for a 2020 first round pick?
2: That's a hard question, right? Um, William Jackson.
1: The long silence is is really what is selling this right here. That there really isn't a lot of guys, right?
2: I, when you're talking about a first round pick, uh,
1: right? I was thinking trade, like, you would trade Dalton for a first, right? Uh, yeah, you would trade AJ Green for a first. Yeah, Gino Atkins. Yep. Carlos Dunlap. Yep. Okay. Uh, so the, the would you ball, trade the, Jesse Bates right yep, now? That was the other one. Jesse okay. Bates was the one I was like, ah, because he's I young. I, he was a second rounder, so you're not really yeah. getting much more value out of it. And then like Tyler Boyd, second rounder coming into his own, still young, but he's a receiver and a slot guy. Yeah. So you debate it. Joe Mixon, for sure i trade him, even though he's yep. one of the best players on the team. He's a running back. You're yep. going to take the first round pick. Yep. Yeah, there are not a lot of guys on this roster I wouldn't do that for. I'm thinking again. I, yeah. Is Bowling, that telling of yep. the roster?
2: I don't know. how. Many, so let's think about another roster.
1: Okay. Um, Let's go to the Browns then. They wouldn't trade Mayfield. Yep. They would trade Chubb. Um, they would trade Landry for a first rounder. Would they trade Injoku for a first rounder? Maybe he was a first round pick. I think he's coming into his own. I think they uh, would. I think they probably would too. But you know, so, just... so the
2: the players they wouldn't trade are Garrett, uh, Ward,
1: Mayfield, and, and Baker. So basically, your your young guys that you've tr- spent first round picks on or high picks because we debated Bates. Uh, so they had to have played well while, while they're young. They have to still be young, under contract for a few more years, and you've invested good resources in them to not trade them. And the Bengals don't have many of those types. Yeah, at premium positions? Right. Yeah.
2: It's a good question. It is a good question, and it's kind of depressing. (laughs) I I don't know. So let's think about another team, Baltimore. I think I'm trading anybody on Baltimore's roster for a first-round pick next year.
1: Not Marlon Humphrey. If we're gonna keep Jackson, you would keep Humphrey at corner. Okay. He was a first round pick, he's he's been really good for them. Um, but yes, I, I understand what you're saying. And it because I don't know if they're gonna have CJ Mosley, he's on a one year deal and he's a linebacker, you probably take that first rounder. Marshall Yanda, Is, really good guard, but he's Mosley's a free agent. Right, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. it, I'm thinking if they franchise him, then oh, okay. would you trade him for first? And I think they would because he's on a one year deal. Sure.
2: Uh, Pittsburgh, I'm trading almost everybody on that roster for a first round or two.
1: Juju Smith-Schuster? Yep. Yeah. David DeCastro? Uh,
2: that's harder. Nope, probably not. Right, probably not.
1: And I think Hayward into it. yes, I would, because they're on the maybe the back half of their careers. Yeah, it's a tough question because there's not many guys that you would keep for a first-round pick.
2: Roethlisberger does get interesting when you think about only his football ability but he's also probably retiring very soon so yeah probably yep all right that wraps up segment two of the mailbag that's a really hard question hopefully we have some easier ones in the back half here one more break we'll wrap up the mailbag and you can get back to your weekend
0: is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements
1: Welcome back to the Lockdown Bengals Podcast. It's our weekend mailbag edition. You send the questions, we answer them. We'll keep it going. This is from Andrew Dockerel at Docker77 on Twitter. He says, What is more valuable? A punter that runs a 424 or a center that runs a four two four? Are they both regular sized? I would assume so, yes. The center. Yeah, because imagine running those zone blocks or letting them get up to the second level or screen passes. How often would you use it? Probably. Would you use it more than a punter? I think so. Yes. I would. I would run my center out there and declare him
2: eligible and start running him on routes. I guess you're right.
1: What if he can't catch though? He's a center
2: for a reason. Then I he's playing, then tight I end. run jet sweeps <laughs> and
1: you hand it to him. Sure. Three hundred pounds. The 4 2 four
2: two four. That's the highest speed score in the history of the world. And if this punter though it runs a four two four, won't you do
1: the same things with him?
2: Yeah, but he's and, gonna get blasted because he weighs 180 pounds.
1: Yeah, you're right. That's just, just a thinking, guy with a leg that weighs that that runs fast. I, it's like uh, I'm just thinking of the fake punts, man with a punter. He may score on a few of those. Yeah, I'm taking the center. You're right. It, it, it's an easy answer. <laughs> I just like to think of a punter running a four-two-four and how yeah. that would. I want to see a punter at the combine run a four-two-four and the discussion after would be, well, what other positions can he play? Oh, They'd yeah. send him out there with the corners and receivers and like, okay, do something. Either of
2: these guys runs a 4-2-4. They're not playing the position that you have them listed
1: at here. And there's something broken with the system, if that's the case. Yeah.
2: All right. Next question comes from Zach at Stemple Zachary. He asks... At 11, Drew Locke is still available, and Washington is high on him. They're offering their 15th and 46th pick this year for the 11th pick. Are you taking the offer? I guess
1: that solely depends on who else is on the board, because you're moving back now four spots, but really it's only three picks, because you know one of them is going to be Drew Locke, right? Uh, So is there four guys that I still view as premium picks or for the position premium. So, uh, you know, say you get to that scenario and it's still, we, we, cause we batted the best case scenario out there of Ed Oliver, Jonah Williams, Devin white are still there. And then like Hawkinson or something, right. So, or another lineman. Yes. Then I do it. But if it's only like Ed Oliver still remaining or only Jonah Williams still remaining, then I don't do it. If Devin white is the only one still remaining, then sure. I still consider it because value of linebacker, he may still be there at 15 just to refer
2: to the Harvard trade value chart, not the Jimmy Johnson trade value chart, the 11th overall pick is worth 291 points and the 15th overall pick is worth 264 points. So that's the difference of 30 27. The 20, to, to get to a pick that's worth 27 doesn't exist on the Harvard chart. So the 46th, pick on the harvard chart is worth 152 points obviously nfl teams. that's why nobody uses that that's true but there's good there's good math backing up the harvard chart and nfl teams are also moving away from the jimmy johnson chart
1: okay but pick 46 on the jimmy johnson chart is worth 440 and 11 to 15 is a difference of 200 points so you'd be winning out there too I'll go with the draft charts. I mean, yeah, it
2: depends who's on the board. If all of your targets are gone, if there's a weird run on tackles and Cody Ford, Greg Little, uh, Jonah Williams, uh, Jawan Taylor, T.J. Hawkinson are all gone already, and it's a and it's you know I'm like, ah, maybe maybe I'm staying put and just getting a guy, but right. yeah, I, I, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario in which moving back four picks isn't worth picking up the forty sixth pick.
1: Next question here, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his name. It's a Polish name here, and there's a lot of Zs and IEKs and stuff like that. But it goes by Justin underscore PRZ on Twitter. And he asks, who are you afraid the Bengals will select with their first-round pick? Janik adjust. Yeah. Actually, I didn't have an answer until you said that. That's a good answer. I'm kind of afraid of of Daniel Jones. Uh for for various reasons, I think you know production scores were bad for him. Uh, he doesn't have the greatest arm. His body type is even though he's big and and everything. When I, I remember the pictures of weighing in, now Tom Brady had terrible pictures when he weighed in, right? But it doesn't look like he is the most imposing player, and he's very just so calm and quiet when I asked him questions at the at the Senior Bowl. They kind of put me off. Uh, so Daniel Jones scares me a little bit, and I would say if they picked him, I'd say. Well, all right, I I guess so, but I wouldn't be excited.
2: I don't know if there's anybody else in the first round who's realistically on the table that, like, I
1: don't really want to see Drew Locke at 11. Well, the combine will still eliminate some people. We still have testing. Like last year at Mm -hmm. this point, we would have been talking about Orlando Brown. But the way he tested I said after that, cannot take Orlando Brown in the first round. Can't Mm -hmm. do it. The risk Mm -hmm. is way too high. Now he had a good rookie year. I, I acknowledge that. I understand that. But the risk would still be too high for take to take a guy like that in the first round again. So uh, we still have that data to go.
2: Yep. Yeah. Next question comes from Andrew. Another one from Dockers77. Name a player you really didn't like in draft season that has gone on to be a quality NFL
1: pro. Good question, because it happens all the time. Just like you like guys and they turn out to be a bust, there's guys you don't like that turn out to be good players. For me, and I think I talked about this on the podcast before, but I, I'm Le'Veon Bell was somebody I did not like at all. Oh, yeah. And his tape wasn't even that good. I mean, there were some people that liked him, but the majority of people didn't love Le'Veon Bell. And then he dropped a lot of weight. He committed himself. He ended up being a really good receiver in terms of route running. He always had good hands. But he completely blew my mind for his transformation from college to pros. Mm-hmm. And it's credit to the Steelers for even seeing that being a possibility and taking him in the second round. The other guy that's on the Bengals roster that I, I wasn't high on was Sean Williams. I had Sean Williams as like a sec. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not second, uh, sixth or seventh round pick, late rounder. And I liked Bakari Rambo, his teammate, the other safety, much better because Rambo had the 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 range and the ball skills, mm-hmm. and you know he looked like the pro- prototype free safety that you really want to have. While Sean Williams was more of a box guy that looked a little stiffer, looked like he was dependent on playing in against the run and being a power tackler. And, you know, all those things are still true, but I didn't value, you know, how much faster he could be, more athletic he could be. And he's not the most athletic guy, but watching him on tape, and he tested better than expected, but watching him on tape, I valued that too much. I valued the tape too much and thought, This is who he's going to be. That's just a role player at the most. And it turns out he's been a quality starter.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, it's usually the other way. That's more often guys that I have liked that have ended up being pretty bad as pros, or at least started out pretty bad as pros. I, in last year's draft, was not a huge fan of Sam Hubbard, but that was mostly because he was getting mocked to the Bengals. At one point, was it a first round, second round?
1: And then they got him in the third, right? I mocked him to him in the second round of my final mock, so thank you very much. Well, but that's
2: when people... It was such a strong link at that point, right? Like, you're going off in news,
1: not projection, right? Yes, there was some news that they liked him. But at the same time, I liked him for what he was and what he did. And he ended up being exactly that. I didn't think he'd ever be... And we don't know what he will be, but I didn't think he'd be fantastic. I just thought, you're getting a quality a run defender that maybe has some upside as a pass rusher.
2: Yeah. I forgot about Le'Veon Bell. I remember laughing at the Steelers picking Le'Veon Bell. Like he had, he had a ton of, of run on his tires. As they yep. say, coming out of Michigan state, he wasn't like, he didn't seem like he had any
1: special traits. And I guess yeah. we had that run. Yep. Very much so. Um, I've got the next question here. And as soon as I can load it up, there we go. It was, and I, should we answer another um, Andrew Dockerel question? Andrew, how many are you going to send us? I appreciate them. We will answer it. At what point in the draft do you stop drafting for starters and begin to look at project players, depth, special teams guys? Day three onwards, after the fifth, what when is that? Uh,
2: for For me, I think it's philosophically probably day three just because the day one, day two picks are so valuable. But looking at NFL teams, they definitely take guys that have the athletic traits uh, and, and don't have the production, but they see the, they see flashes on film and they see, okay, they can do this thing. And and then those guys go day day two, sometimes yep. even day one, I guess. But yeah, for, for me, philosophically, it's, it's, I don't want to pick a guy that doesn't check at least two boxes and half of a third, if I can help it until as late as possible. So day three. Right. That's not always the way it goes, but I mean, you'll, you'll definitely see starting in third round NFL
1: teams start to get pretty comfortable picking developmental guys. And that's what I was going to say. Third round seems to be the range where project players and developmental guys will be drafted. And you're because the hit rate on third round starts to drop off a little bit. It's, it's obviously not as strong as round two. And when you get to there, that's when you can find sometimes a gem. But also you don't feel as bad if you waste that pick. Uh, But the depth and special teams guys, I think you have it in the right order. Project first, then you may take some depth guys. If it's offensive lineman in the fifth round, you should expect he's a career depth guy. If he ends up being anything more, it's a bonus. Same with defensive line, linebacker. Those are depth positions. But the sixth and seventh, those guys are being drafted for special teams, I feel. More often than not, especially the Bengals, guys they've taken over the years, whether it's a kick returner, punt returner, gunner, or just a a Clayton Fedulum, Brandon Wilson type, they like to nail those and fill out that bottom three you know, on your 53 through those last few rounds or last couple rounds, or maybe even seventh round. So I think it goes in that order. Uh, but that's how you also miss out sometimes on a guy that goes in the sixth round and we're like, man, he ended up being a good player. Yeah. Because that team drafted him because they liked him, not because they pegged him to be a special team or only. Yep. That's an interesting point.
2: Are we on to the next question? Yeah, to you. Damon at Damon Downs asks, I'd like to hear how you guys got into football, how you both got into reviewing
1: and analyzing tape and how long you've been doing it, et cetera. So into football, I mean, always growing up. But when I decided I wanted to write about it, have an opinion, um, flesh out these opinions, flesh out a process. And I think it started maybe 10 years ago at this point. It may even be longer, maybe 11. But I was always into the draft and player evaluation and scouting more than I was the playing aspect, and so for me, it was natural to when the the whole draft kind of community and scene took off. Obviously, it was Mel Kiper leading the way back in the early two thousands. That was the only guy you could really watch on TV that was talking draft, and from there it's exploded, right? And there was maybe three or four websites you could go to at that time, so it was always reading those same mock drafts and scouting reports all the time. And then more video became available. You couldn't find all 22 for anything back in those days. So you're watching highlights and trying to get evaluation off that, listening to the few people you can, reading books it, it, to help you know what you're talking about. And then things have gotten easier and And the community has grown so much. You can bounce ideas off people and correct yourself with something that you may have thought that turns out data says you're not right on that. So there is a lot of, of resources to help guide me to where I've gotten to now. But it was about 10 years ago that I saw people on like Cincy Jungle and other websites that I went on. And I was like, I want to have that same opinion or I want to curate my own opinion based on data and information and things that I'm seeing just to put it out there and see if people like it. And they did. So I kept growing from there and I didn't understand any part of the journalism or beat writer or or any type of writing. Honestly, English was my worst class growing up. I didn't know the difference between there, there, and there coming out of high school. I learned all that stuff afterwards because I wanted to have my articles look right and sound right and and get my point across. So that has all been part of the transition for me. The football part has always been easy. The writing and finding out what's next in terms of Vine videos and, and doing clips and illustrating. That's always been what's next. How can I make it so people can digest it and read it? And for me, the football part's easy. When you had your first editor, was that The Athletic? Have you had an editor before you wrote for The Athletic? I had an editor when I wrote for Bleacher Report and I was doing um, right. scouting there. I mean, I guess Cincy Jungle kind of does some of that. It was Jason Garrison, I believe, at the time. But it, the more they pay you, the more they edit your stuff and really, mm-hmm. really look at it and try and fix it. Yeah. Uh,
2: by inverse, I guess I have a little bit of a media background. I considered journalism when I was at university and I was the editor of my newspaper at, at Princeton high school for two years. Uh, so I have a lot of editing experience. I learned the MLA style guide. I was friends with a lot of journalism people at Northwestern so I have a little bit of the journalism background. I started writing for Cincy Jungle in 2009, was on and off with them for four or five years. Uh, then I did the pro football Focus focusing. And, and when I saw the pro football focus was hiring for film analysis, this is after I think all 22 was a thing. People were getting into it, doing film reviews, doing doing videos doing long form pieces on this is what these themes are doing on tape. And I found those pieces to be really interesting. And I liked writing about them. And I remember trying to teach myself Photoshop so I could come up with cool visual pictures before the vines and the gifts were really a thing. So I would, I would do, you know, pictures with cool arrows and shadows and highlighting and stuff. Well, pro football focus is really where it took off for me when I was watching the games, digging into them, charting the player activity, starting to really understand at a deeper level what teams were doing. And, and then it kind of fell off for me for a while. So I haven't been as active with it for the last five years, I'd say. So, you know, Joe, Joe you obviously have a lot more recent experience of digging into film, digging into individual players than I do. But I'm still you know, I'm still there. I can still look at it and see what people are talking about and it's still a little bit intuitive to me and I'm certainly rusty. I need to get back into some books. I've read Smart Football by Chris Brown. Chris Brown? Yep, you're right. Yeah, I read that book, but that was a long time ago. I need to start reading some of those books again, read uh, you know, Bill Belichick's dad's dad's book, Bill Belichick's
1: book again. That's what I'm reading uh one about the Rams offense from last year, which mm-hmm seemed applicable when i saw it i was like you know that's my next one and it's based on concepts and what they did and you know what we should expect basically is how i'm taking it but yeah and and hopefully it keeps going and hopefully i can keep finding ways to do this i don't know where it's going to go you know i went from just writing to kind of covering the team to trying to spread any information that i could get which sometimes i did and then it became just straight film and then only doing Twitter for a while because I didn't want to have the responsibilities of writing other places. And then it became the athletic, which or it's just scouting, actually. I, I was paid to, to, to scout for two years for Bleacher Report. And then the athletic thing. So it's evolved, and now I'm doing the podcast. So it just continues to evolve, and I, I kind of change or focus on whatever the needs are for that year or season. Yeah, and and
2: I think it's going to continue to grow, right? We're we're seeing these new media forms pop up: Twitter, The Athletic, the podcast, and podcasts are growing. So I think we're both excited about the future of this podcast.
1: And we did that stream two years ago where oh, we yeah. reviewed. So it wasn't, it hasn't been five years for you. We did a stream where we every week on Twitch and and Periscope we would uh, review the All Twenty Two Bengals film. And for about an hour or two hours, sometimes people would be able to comment, ask questions. We'd go over maybe five to ten plays, sometimes a whole quarter or a whole drive of of what we thought was interesting, and that was good. I think that if we could ever find a way to fully do it um, and make it look better and be marketable, or even live reactions to the games while they're going on, if you could like almost go over the commentary of what's going on, uh, you know, during a live game, I think that could be the next step or the next or the next future for. This football analysis.
2: Yeah, it's hard, right? Because then you're competing with TV and radio, doing it live, and then you're competing with like the TV with the high production values, the NFL, yep. you know, the show with Greg Cassell and uh,
1: Sal. You uh, know, it's just when people say like, I'd love to sit in NFL a room or, or or a bar and watch it with you and just so they just want to hear you comment or or talk through the game while it's going on. I think that could have some appeal.
2: Yeah, and that's, that's where I say, you know, you're essentially competing with radio at that point. You're doing a, a stream of you watching the game, I guess, and then video delay becomes an issue. Sure, yep, for sure.
1: But not to harp on that. Um, That'd next be a cool question. next step, for sure, yeah. I think it will be. Next question is from RoboCop. And I bring this one up because I kind of have an answer. Uh, but he says, what are the chances, you think, of the Bengals trading up and taking a quarterback? History tells us that that chance is roughly zero unless they really like a quarterback, then recent history says those teams have to trade up to get their quarterback. Those teams do, but not the Bengals. That's true and fair. And the only reason I wanted to really answer that, and it's funny that he asked that today, is because I um, sometimes I get unsolicited rumors sent to me, and I normally don't spread them or don't even acknowledge them or push them any further. Sometimes I will try if I think it's Noteworthy, I will try to confirm it with a different source. And if I can get it from two sources, then I feel comfortable about it. But I never really share my information with people because that's not my business. That's not my job. That's not what I do. I use it to help me build my draft board. I don't share it with you so you can help you build your draft board, basically. But in this scenario, um, someone sent me something today, and I've talked to him before, and he's been on things before. And he said he was talking, he covers the Broncos, basically. And he mentioned someone that would know in within the Broncos organization, like, who would, who do we have to be aware of or, or afraid of jumping us to take a quarterback? And he said right off the bat, 100%, the Bengals, for Drew Locke, was his response. And I said, oh, okay, well, thank you for that information. But, but again, it's not confirmed, it's not corroborated with anyone else. I just thought I should share that stuff because uh, we do this daily and we should, you know, talk about those things. It is lying season, as they it say. It is but lying also- season. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that would be kind of, I don't know how I feel about that. I was like, oh, well, like as if they're, if they love him that much to trade up. Well, I, I love that enthusiasm and I can get behind that, but I don't love Drew Locke as a prospect.
2: Maybe, maybe the hand measurement will scare them off. Uh, should we take one last question? Sure. What do you got? Who Day at who underscore day underscore asks, what Bengals would you re-sign this offseason And which would you let walk in free agency? We're kind of touching on this as we get through the positional reviews, but this is a good overview question. Big picture. Let's end on this.
1: Yeah. And I think I'm looking at the big free agents. Derek was being the biggest. If the price is right, I'm talking six, maybe 7 million a year. Sure. Let's bring them back. If we're getting to eight, nine, 10 and we could very well get to there. I don't do it. I don't think he is a difference maker in terms of uh, in coverage. I think as a run defender, being a physical defender and a tackler, he's as good as you want at at those traits. But are you paying corners to be run defending assets or do you pay him to stop that slant on third and five in man coverage? Because that's where he gets eaten alive a little bit. And I don't feel I can trust him if he has to go out into the boundary and, and cover out there. So, I'm limited in what I feel his value is. I think he is very replaceable when I look around the league at nickel corners, slot corners. So I don't want to invest huge money. But if you're telling me they're going to move on from Kirkpatrick next year, so they're going to solidify inside and maybe, you know, find a replacement for Kirkpatrick, then I can understand the long-term plan. But immediate, I'm letting Denard walk if the price gets too crazy. But I want to retain Eifer. I want to retain CJ Uzama. Um, I don't want to retain Bobby Hart. I'd like if they just let him walk and that. Pretty much covers the big guys. Preston Brown, I'd be interested at the right price. Yeah, I think you named the guys
2: Preston Brown, Dark CJ Uzama, Tyler Eifert. All of them with the caveat of I don't want to really overpay, which might sound a little too much like Mike Brown, but those aren't guys that I think command
1: an overpay. I'd rather which... overpay Tyler Boyd. And, you know, I'd rather overpay AJ Green and retain them. The guys that are coming up as free agents. Yeah.
2: Uh, maybe we'll take one more. I lied. Last question. Okay. Uh, This is from D Pice at D Pice 716. Give me three reasons to remain open-minded about the Bengals because right now they're at hot mess
1: status. Um, I guess that is a negative way to look at it. I think right now um, we are in the unknown territory, so we're afraid. Uh, there's a lot of unknown hires that are happening they have a young staff we're not sure where they're going with the future or if they're rebuilding or if it's they're going to try and win now this year they haven't drafted particularly well for a long enough stretch to make you feel like this draft is going to be a home run it could be you know a john ross pick it could be uh you know billy price and you won't feel as good because they may not have that impact as rookie years so There are a lot of reasons to be negative, but I think the reasons to be positive are why every team that is young and starting over and maybe even hitting a soft reboot feel excited. And it's that anything can happen. And if you roll the dice and you land on the right number, you have a winning team and you can get back in this thing very quickly. And that's the exciting part is that Marvin Lewis here. Here's the one reason to be excited. I felt out of the 53 guys that made that played most of last season, maybe 50 of them were playing below our our expectations or what we thought they could achieve. Maybe 3 of them playing above. I felt like Marvin Lewis was bringing down a lot of this roster and and his staff and the way they they did things were bringing down this roster. Now I don't I don't think highly of this roster, but when you're getting the absolute minimum out of them, you're going to perform like that. And we could see as the wheel started come up, coming off as the season rode on, It looked worse and worse, and that has happened the last three years. There is a chance that even having just a neutral coach that isn't an amplifier or someone that's soul-sucking gets more out of this team and out of some of these players that we say, hey, they haven't developed this third-round pick. Well, it's probably because the coaching staff. So maybe there's a chance you get in a different coach, even if you're not high on Zach Taylor, and all of a sudden – that same guy, that Christian Westerman, turns into a starter. Andrew Billings takes that next step. Whatever, whatever the case it is, roll the dice on these guys that haven't given you anything, and now all of a sudden they could, and that should get you excited.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of unknown, right? There's a lot of new, young, unknown parts, and you could either look at that and be like, oh, we've been, we've known what we were getting for the last 16 years. We've known that there's a chance, you know, we're most likely going to get a season that's eight and eight or better for most of the Marvin Lewis years, and for Bengals fans coming out of the 90s. That's great. That's improvement. That's consistency. That's winning football. And and now we have this first year. This is just like Andy Dalton's first year for me, where you're like, I think they're going to be bad. Like, yeah. I, I have no hope that they're going to be good. But... Then they, then they go in and they run off a good five-year stretch with Andy Dalton, the second-round quarterback, going to the playoffs five years five years in a row, and they exceed expectations. So there's a lot of unknown. You don't know how that's going to play out. So you have what we asked for, which is external, young, innovative coaches, uh, a, a fresh look at the roster, and potentially a different approach to the draft, free agency, team building, some modernization in terms of analytics amongst the coaching staff, uh, it looks like Mike Brown is taking less of an active role with the team, which is something that a lot of fans are probably relieved to see. Duke Tobin is taking that GM title more and more. And, and if you don't accept it at this point, you're probably being a little too stubborn. So those are some reasons to stay open-minded, I think.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that.
2: Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Weekend Mailbag on the Lockdown Bengals podcast, your daily podcast for the Cincinnati Bengals on the lockdown podcast network. If we didn't get to your question, uh, please accept our apologies. We had even more this week than last week. We will be recording next week's mailbag weather permitting on Thursday. So get your questions in Wednesday, Thursday morning, and we will see you next week. Bengals fans enjoy the combine.
0: a hey, prime members,